MSW Media. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to this, our 111th episode of What We're Drinking, and it is a banging episode. Coming up in just a little bit, former host of Booze Traveler on the Travel Channel, Mr. Jack Maxwell. Love that guy. Also joining us, Tristan Merman, who is the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, a brand I really dig that's the only American rum using single-origin, 100% fresh sugarcane juice that's grown and distilled in the French Caribbean, and then it gets aged and finished in Napa, California. Got the French-Caribbean-California fusion thing going. Their rum-making process is eco-positive and ultimately carbon-negative through focus on the three R's, regenerative... (laughs) can't say it regenerative (laughs) regenerative agriculture yes i did it (laughs) renewable energy and responsible choices what's that last thing responsible choices i know nothing about this first i want to remind you i'm i'm doing this exciting new thing on an app called stereo stereo is the social media app for the podcasting world Here on this show, it's a one-way street. I talk, you listen. But in stereo, get that app. You get to join in on the conversation live by pressing a button, recording a message, and hitting send. And then me and my co-host, who thus far has been my buddy, actor Colin Donnell, and I hope it's going to be him again. I want to do it again this Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and hopefully it's going to be Colin Donnell on stereo. you got to follow me at Dan Dunn, and you'll get updates about when I'm going live. So yeah, you you get in there and I just kick it. It's very casual, not nearly as structured and orderly as what you've come to expect here on this podcast. It's just a free-for-all. It's nuts. It's crazy. So hopefully, you know, tune in Thursday, 8 p.m. Pacific or Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I'm going to be there. It's a chance to fire away questions and, at me and, and Colin. Again, it's at Dan Dunn on Stereo. Also, social media invites you to follow me at WWD underscore podcast. That's the podcast's Instagram. And then my own personal one is at the imbiber. I'm also at the imbiber on the Twitter. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So the Batiste Rum centric portion of my chat with Tristan Merman, the CEO of Batiste Rum, that's going to come after we talk to the booze traveler, Jack Maxwell. But after I finished interviewing Tristan about Batiste, the other day, we, we kept on chatting and we kept on drinking with the recorder running. We wound up getting into some heavy rum-fueled conversation. 
I share with Tristan some of my genuine concerns about the future of humanity, and he shared with me what he called his out-there theory about life, the universe, and everything. Let me just say it involves comets hitting the Earth, mass extinction, lasers, rockets, industrialization, the uh, dominable spirit of the citizens of Earth, and he even managed to tie in the booze business's significant role in all of this. I was fascinated. It was gripping. And I think what Tristan ultimately delivered upon me when I really needed it was a message of hope. And I'm hoping maybe that'll resonate with some of you. So I'd like to kick things off with that now. This is Tristan Merman of Batiste Rum. Little little bit here. Then we're going to go to Jack Maxwell. And then we're going to go back to Tristan Merman. We're all over the place today. Maybe this is exactly like stereo. Maybe I lied to you. But let's jump into it right now, shall we? Okay, tell me your totally out there theory. In the context of alcohol, um, my totally out there, the- out there theory is that the human experience basically industrialized 10,000 years ago, right? And it came at the end of a comet strike that effectively wiped out 90% of life on Earth, right? And nothing sets life on Earth back faster than a comet strike. Wait, a Death Star would. A Death, a Death Star. Star. Well, it's okay. kind of a comet. It's kind of a comet. All right. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But you know, they're, they're saying, you know, there was this, this this discussion about how the comet smacked into the earth and it took a bunch of time for people to die and, or a bunch of, bunch of time for everything to die. And now they're saying it took four hours, right? So the point of the human experience is to industrialize, to build rockets, satellites, computers, all to co- organize a defense mechanism around the earth to protect against giant falling rocks from outer space. And the, po- the place of alcohol inside of all of that was that right at the same time that we started working, you know, going to work regularly and being told what to do and, you know, kings and queens directing us based on their divine providence and all that stuff, we started drinking, right? You know, it, it happened at the exact same time. And so now we're at, the, essentially, we're at the end of the industrial process, right? Like, so if the role of humans was to computerize, to build rockets, to build satellites, to do things to protect the earth from giant falling rocks from outer space, we've done it. Now we just have to improve on it. But in the last four years, we've demonstrated that we can hit a comet with, with a probe, that we can, we're, we've got AI that can discern between giant rocks and background light and all kinds of different things. So the role of the human industry has reached a point where there is not a whole lot more industry to do. There's a whole lot of cleanup to do. Right. You know, meaning that it's like the workshop where they make a pile of dust and there's wooden and crap everywhere else. And they finish the piece. And now the piece has been moved outside. And now you got to go inside and you got to clean everything up and get ready for the next thing. Right. So I feel like genuinely feel like we are now at the cleanup phase where we've done industry. We had this huge ramp in, in, in heavy industry for the, you know, in the last hundred years, we did more industry in a hundred years than we did in the 9,900 years before, you know, since World War II to now, we went gangbusters, right? But isn't isn't a lot of that, a lot of the problems we're having a result of that industry? Entirely because of that. Entirely because of that. But, but that's the thing. Like, you make a mess, right? And you experiment, and you're trying different things out, and you make this big mess, but you end up with the result. We have the result. The result is satellites. We have computational ability to hit things going full speed offside, outside the planet, long distances away. We can hit them with a rocket because all you have to do is move it out of the way, right? You don't have to blow it up. You just have to move it. So all those things are in place now. So now what, right? Well, now what? It's cleanup, right? You don't need as many people. You don't need as much industry. 
you know, so it's, it's uncomfortable because the cleanup is, you know, uncomfortable. You got to put everything away. And we were headed in a trajectory for a long time, which was more people, more industry, more and more and more. And all of a sudden it was over. So what's next? Well, the next industry is cleanup, new infrastructure, you know, better environmental operations, restoring all the stuff that got trashed. So you're saying you're saying people that had jobs in certain sectors, it's going to shift to other sectors. Like I just read an article yeah. today, actually, about uh, toll workers in toll booth workers in gone. Pennsylvania. They're all gone now. It's all been gone. So yeah. you're saying that there's going to be a place for those workers in other areas. There's well, I think the need for the need for the amount of workers that have been in the past, I think that'll decline. Are we getting into the Andrew Yang territory also? Where I you don't just, know what, what is he saying? Andrew Yang is saying you you just have a, a wage that you pay people. I think there's I honestly I think, you know, again, getting back to what you were talking about before, right? Which was, you know, Biden is presenting or you know, the administration is presenting a, a green new deal on some level. Figure out a way to do new infrastructure projects, because you know. New infrastructure projects that put people to work to make the place better. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt did that, right? What was the result? They took he put into he put an infrastructure package in place that took us from the horse and buggy, right, to electricity and cars. Yeah, right. That was that's what happened during the recession, you know, the Great Depression. So now we're at the next place, which takes us from the car, the car and the road, and the oil and, and the coal fire plant and all that to the next stage, right? So. Some are arguing that it's electrical, tr- electricity driven. Some are arguing it's hydrogen driven. Some are arguing it's smarter cities. Who knows? We got to try them all out. But the reality of the, my reality in all of this is that the kind of industry we've been doing for the last seventy years is done. Right? I'm working on a project that is acknowledging, like, hey, rum has been made a certain way for a couple hundred years. It's been not great as a as an industry. Not you know. It's, there's waste. There's. Well, there's I mean, it started off so good, though. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we will we will do a history of rum someday. It was not a. It didn't go. It was a giant well. party. Yeah. It came with pirates. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. The free labor force had something to do with the uh, rum industry in the beginning. At the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, so to, to your, you know, to 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 get to your point, which is like, you know, here you are at fifty, looking down the road and saying, well, what does it mean? You know, what, not what does it mean, but what, what can I expect and what, you know, should I be dismayed or should I be encouraged? You know, Trump, Trump's a really interesting piece because it, you can argue it to, to you blue in the face. I listen to the people from uh, the Ukraine, from Estonia and from Belarus who all say that I've, you know, people I know from there said that was a Russian involvement if I ever saw one, because it looks exactly like what happened in our country. Right. You know. Throw, throw, you know, throw a, a burning rat into the middle of the fire and see who freaks out. That's what he did. And, you know, it was the cheapest, you know, cheapest op you've ever seen. And it was, it was amazing. Did an amazing job. So, you know, now we've got dissent where we didn't have dissent. And, you know, now, now what do you do? Right. Cause I mean, I can go on and on and on. So I'll, I'll stop. So you're saying I should have, I should have, I should be hopeful. is what you're saying. I, I should, I'm saying that you should put your mind to focus on what it is that you want to participate in and what you want to see and do it and then fuck the rest of it. I love that, man. Thank you. you know. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I'm going to have more rum now. <laughs> pour that in. And, well, and the rum good. helps. I mean, this is, yeah. uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you when you're drinking a delicious rum. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Folks, I've never admitted this on the show before, but I'm a guy. Yeah, it's true. And as a guy, 
I'm here to tell you that so much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Treatments start at just $10 per month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. Go to keeps.com slash drinking to receive your first month of treatment for free. Take care of your hair, and your hair will take care of you. Joining me now, a man who for four seasons was the host of the late, great Travel Channel program, Booze Traveler. He is the pride of South Boston, which of course is like being valedictorian at summer school, but nonetheless, my man, <laughs> Jack Maxwell. Hey, buddy. How are you? Oh, that's some Philly trash talk coming <laughs> hey, in. I got you. I'm Northeast Philly right. guy, South, but we're going to talk some shit here. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. Yeah, Eagles and Patriots. You're going to rub that in, are you? All right. That's, that's right. Yeah. How you doing, man? Everything good? Uh, I'm good, bro. Look what I'm pouring. You see that? You got a little. You got a little rum Batiste already. Diving right in. I love that. We uh, we're gonna be drinking that. And, and like I said a little bit later in the show, I'm gonna be talking to Tristan Merman, the owner. Uh, all right, man. What do you think? You just went right in. You went right in. Batiste rum is the only American rum uh, that uses 100% fresh sugar cane juice that they get from the French Caribbean, and then they age it and finish it in Napa. And I want to hear it. I want to hear it straight from Jack Maxwell, Booze Traveler. What do you think of the of the rum? You know, I, I have to say, and I don't want to get too long winded. I know this is a short show. I've always been a traditional rum kind of guy. And then this agricole and this French rum starts uh, coming into the uh, into the conversation. And I like the 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 old school, I guess, because whatever you're used to. Right. Yeah. But as we know, agricole is, is sugar cane juice. It's not made from molasses. But, uh, you know, from time to time, I'll give it a try. So. Uh, so here we go. Obviously, it has different qualities, different notes, but uh, it's still rum. How bad can it be? That's right. I love I love this is the silver that you're drinking. Right. See, that's to me. Whether you like an, a spirit or not, you can always tell quality, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you if that's not your favorite. You can still tell the difference between good and bad. That's a, that's a nice rum. It's it's grassy, has a little lemongrass, a little citrus notes, things like that, and it's a little sharper uh, than than traditional in molasses rum, obviously. But that's that's not bad. That's Batiste, huh? Okay. Batiste rum silver you just tried. I've got some the Batiste rum gold in my glass. So this was aged at least six months in American rye whiskey barrels. And then I got to say, I'm, yeah, this one, mm. yeah, it's, it does have that little bit of bite to it that you mentioned, which you, which you get with the, with the, this style of rum. I, really like I think this is a really smooth rum I'm, I'm anxious to talk to Tristan about it, but that's why I, but while I have you here Jack this is what I'm talking about you have gone and you mentioned the rum I mean you did four seasons of Booze Traveler which would have been my dream job had I gotten it but you got it all right I didn't even get up I didn't go up right hey no hard feelings well maybe slightly hard feelings no it's pretty incredible man it started in 2014 and I'm, you got to go, I'm just look like season one, you were in Spain and Austria and Iceland, Mongolia, Nepal, Japan, Lithuania, the Netherlands, New Orleans, Belize, South Africa, Tennessee, Turkey, Peru. That's season one. 
how, first off, man, how did you? What a whirlwind that must have been. Do it. How? What was it like doing the show? The actual physical demands of doing that sort of a show. Well, first of all, when I got the show, I felt the same as you and other people who probably a lot more qualified. I can't believe I'm getting this. This is amazing, right? I just go on an audition. They ask me a few questions. I'm certainly no alcohol or drinks expert. I am a kid from Southie and I'm Irish. So uh, I pulled a few corks in my day, no doubt. And I knew the difference between a bourbon and a whiskey, et cetera. Right. But uh, and good from bad most of the time. But to me, it was never about the drinks, really. It was what people drink, why they drink it. And then, of course, the great stories they tell when they do. And that's the same around the world. It was never a celebration of excess. Uh, We never got into the weeds, so to speak. It wasn't inside baseball on how alcohol was made or beer was brewed. I mean, we covered that, of course, because that's part of the process. But it's really a celebration of life, the enjoyment of it all. And I didn't know going out it was going to be this. We didn't quite know what kind of show we were going to do. As you know, you've heard this a million times. Everybody wanted the next Bourdain. And I said, I I can't do it like Anthony Bourdain. I mean, he's a writer. He's a chef. He's so much smarter than I'll ever be. He's an expert in so many ways. And he wouldn't want to do it the way I need to do this show if I'm going to do it. Because it's just a certain perspective, a point of view that people can tell. If it's not authentic, you're forcing something uh, I mean, he was he was very authentic and you could feel it, whether it's up, down, good or bad. You knew that he was being real and that's who Anthony Bourdain was. And that was part of his genius. For me, I didn't want to be Bourdain or anyone else but myself. And if that didn't work, then the show doesn't work. Right. But you got you got to try to be uh, as honest uh, as as you can be. So going out there, there was some some bumps along the road to start out, of course, till we figured things out. And I finally said. Listen, this is what the show is. These people who are bringing us in, letting us sit down with them, sharing their food, their friends, their family and their drink. It's got to be about the joy of life more than anything else. And finally, they said, "Okay, let's try that. And maybe had a little bit of a sense of humor or some, you know, the uh, the, the fun that you can have when you do that. Because when you sit down with someone, you know this better than me. You sit down with someone, it means something when you sit down over a drink, right? If you put your proverbial symbolic weapons down and your fist go, then you say, okay, we're cool. Let's have a drink and see what happens. And I think more than anything else, that's what the show is about. Well, so many, I mean, if you think about human history, just how many relationships and deals and things that were struck over alcohol, whether, you know, Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt got together in Yalta to figure out how to defeat the Nazis. And supposedly that's where the dirty martini was born. They got drunk and basically were like, here's what we're going to do. You know, families and weddings and everything else that goes along with it. I want to ask you, Jack, do you remember the first place you went? I I do. And that's a good question too. And I'll tell you why in a second. But that thing, the funny you just say about Yalta, when I was in Armenia, I've had a hundred people tell me, you know, it was Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill. They drank our Devine and they loved it so much. They sent each other bottles and cases. That was us. We were responsible for the Yalta conference. <laughs> and I just love the pride that people and cultures have. But the first place we went uh, was Turkey. Oh, so and that was the actual first episode that aired, too. Yeah, you know, because they didn't have a lot of time to move it around. We shot so close to the air date and we had to turn around because at first they lit up eight shows and then they went to 13, then 15 
And I think they added a 16th all on the road. So they just had to cut them. And, and basically, they were in the order we shot them. So do you remember, did you just sort of get thrown to the wolves in Turkey? Or did you have a, was there a plan? In, I mean, obviously, there was a, had to be at least a loose plan in place. But or you just kind of figured it out as you went? Well, I got to say the production company, Cargo 7, they did a great job pre-producing the show, lining up the guests, the scenes that we would shoot, the locations. They were really great with that. But I didn't have a lot of help figuring out how I was going to do it because it is nobody's fault. They were great. Travel Channel was very supportive of the show, but it was my responsibility, in other words, to figure out how to approach this uh, in the most honest way without being, uh, you know, too... Uh, earnest about it or and I because I was fascinated I'd never been to Turkey and a lot of things just caught me a little off guard for instance they they have soccer game obviously they call that football over there but two teams that it was not even the playoffs as you know the playoffs here it's a frenzy uh you know how big the Super Bowl was and all of that just you know not too long ago so they get together seven or eight or nine hours before this regular season game you have to go to the stadium with your ID Days before to get the tickets because they don't want to let certain elements in. They had water cannons shooting at the crowd because they were rushing the gates. Nine hours they were shooting off drums and fireworks and banging. And we were drinking in, in, in Forza Square. And I, this is regular season. This is not even the tips. I can't believe there's such great fans and they love it so much. And a lot of times you understand, of course, it takes them away from whatever's really going on, right? It's the great diversion. Yeah. Not only are they great fans, but a lot of countries, as you know, don't have it as well as we do. Uh, you know, we talk about things, first world problems and all of that. As as great as it as, as it was over there, you could see there was a lot of struggle and they lose themselves in that. And I think it's great though. We had a I had a great time. But I was I was thrown off. It was a lot of a lot of for instance, I wasn't eating red meat, right? I for some on, on a bet, I stopped eating red meat like 20 years before that. The first scene we get there, we're right in the middle of Forza Square, right before this this soccer game, and this guy runs out and he and he sees us and has a platter of uh you know sliced meat and he and he and he hands it to me and uh he sees the camera so he's doing like a commercial he's like uh try my my it's best in turkey and he's looking at me looking at the camera and i said oh great is this chicken hoping it was because i wasn't eating red meat and he looks at me he says no it's beef best beef so i said i made it i made a decision at that point if this show was going to go, I was really going to have to immerse myself in the cultures, whatever that meant, even if I felt a little uncomfortable. So I picked up that first time in 20 years, red meat, and I ate it, and I just loved it all. And that really opened up my perspective in more ways than one about the world and how accepting you have to be to really uh, soak it all in and to enjoy those experiences and give it back to the you know people who are watching to know what it's really like. No, did you? I guess in Turkey it would have been what uh, Rocky uh, is what they drink over there, right? That's the grape based. That's right. Uh, yeah, that that that's their drink. It's funny they, I I pronounced it wrong when I got there. I said Rocky, and they they have a it's like a short a sound, which is strange because it's spelled R A K I. They call it Raka like that, Raka. and they just they abbreviate. So I've always it. called it Rocky too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, me too. I, what do I know? And maybe that's just the way they say it there. But it's this great anise, this anise based. Uh, clear liquid 
and you mix it with water, two clear liquids, and it becomes cloudy. It's called lion smoke, which is fascinating, the chemicals and all of that. But they just revere it over there, and they tell wonderful stories. There's this thing called Friday prayers. Everybody's supposed to be, you know, because it's a very uh, Muslim-oriented country, uh, I think 80 or 90%, and they, they go to Friday prayers. But this one group does Friday prayers, and it's a lot of famous writers and architects and uh, news anchor types and journalists. And they sneak off to a cafe and they have their Friday prayers. And we just drink rock all day and talk and laugh and exchange stories. It was wonderful. Oh, that's amazing. You went four seasons. I just mentioned season one. I mean, I'm just looking at the list and I won't do the whole thing. But I mean, Argentina, Guatemala, Hong Kong, Brazil, India, Scotland, Tanzania, Hungary, Ireland, Florida, South Korea, Colombia, Croatia, Cuba. I mean, Jack, you've been so many places. Is there a handful that maybe stood out to you? Places where you just, it'll it'll always stay with you. Absolutely. First of all, I want to say how lucky I was. Anybody could have done that show. You would have been great. Our mutual friends who are in the business would have been great. I just I just was lucky enough to get it. And and so you were, I but really you, but you you killed it, man. You were so good on that show. And and I told and and I I've said this to you again off the air. I jokingly, people would always say to me, they'd say. How the fuck did this guy get your show? Who's he? He's like he's not even in the booze business, right? And I, I remember I, I definitely went into watching it with a chip on my shoulder because I was like, I was mad at my. I'm like, how did was I not up for this show, right? And then and then I started watching it, and it, you know, probably the first episode, I was like, what a dick, you, right? You know, like how did? Just kidding. And then by like a couple, but you know what? I kept watching it, man. I kept watching. It, I kept watching. It, and what it was, it's the same thing I've said to my friend uh, Phil Rosenthal about his show is. Your enthusiasm for where you were and the people you were meeting and what you were doing, it came through. And that is not something that's very easy to do. Watching you, I think, made viewers want to be there too, doing it the way you were doing it. You're a guy from South Boston who got to go all over the friggin' world and, it, and you got a good head on your shoulders and you're smart, you know what you're doing. And it connected. It really connected. It connected with me, and it certainly connected. You got four seasons on there. It certainly connected with a lot of viewers as well. So, thank you. Yeah, no, it, it, and that was that was no false construct. I wasn't trying to be enthusiastic to make the show work. I really was. I mean, I was fascinated by these. How could you? How could you go meet Maasai warriors and not be fascinated? Or in Mongolia or Japan, sumo wrestlers and get to talk to them. Uh, just you know, as, as people and how they really are. And they share their fears, their insecurities, their hopes. Their, and meanwhile, they're the biggest stars in the world over there. Nothing can touch a sumo grand champion. And here they are, or even uh, champions, not even grand champions. And they're just so revered. People bow down. And one of them just said to me, I wonder what it would like to just be normal for a little while. You know, such great insights and the things they would share. But as far as episodes that stand out to me, uh, I, I have to say I was lucky enough to bring my mother uh, to, to uh, on one episode. And it was, I wanted to pick the right one for her. So we went, I brought her to Sicily because her grandfather left Sicily as a kid and said, one day I'll come back. And he never did, but his family is still there. And they were watching the show because this was the top of season two. So they saw the first season and I have relatives in Chicago that go there. We, they talked about me and one day maybe Jack will come. So we got to film uh, an episode there, Dan, it was great. And they were crying, hugging my mother. You know, we didn't show that. It's not about, it's not family reunion. Right. But just to be with them and how happy they were to, to see 
they didn't even know me, but to see me and my mother and to connect to America because they heard all these stories and a lot of them don't speak English. And it was I, I, I really felt connected to my past. As I said, when I I just did this thing to camera off the cuff because I felt that I said, welcome home DNA, because I just felt like a part of me was home. I mean, I love the States. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I would if I had to. But it just just that really stands out because that that felt to me, knowing I could do that for my mother and to connect with my family, uh, it just it just it was wonderful. I'll, I'll never forget that. But the other ones like Cuba. Well, you're, let me get, is, jump in here real quick. You're, it must have been it had to be a seminal moment in your mother's life as well. Oh yeah, she still stays in touch with some of them, you know. And because uh, I got to figure, Jack, your your mom's probably it's probably similar. So first of all, let me make sure I got this straight. So your mother's Italian from side of the family's Italian from Sicily. Right. Same as same as mine. Same as mine. My mom's really my mom's maiden name is Fabrizio. La Paglia. La La Paglia. Yeah. And my dad is done. Irish. A little bit. So I'm it's say you know, Southie and where I'm from, I grew up in northeast Philadelphia. It's very, very similar to where you so everybody where I grew up was Italian and Irish. You know, my mom never went anywhere. You know, they had no money, they didn't do anything. So I gotta imagine it and I we was able to I was able to do a couple things with her and I those trips just stay with them forever. Absolutely. Yeah. Same with in Boston, the Irish and the Italian, they got together, they'd have get married, have kids, divorce, and that's it. So many in my family, you know, my my father and mother divorced when I was one. But uh, a lot of kids are, are mixed. A lot of people, there Italian and Irish. So you grew up with people very similar to you. And I came out, you know, we moved out to Phoenix when I was a teenager. And uh, I said, you're not Italian and Irish. <laughs> you're from you're something else. Wait, are you <laughs> sure they didn't think they were hiring me? Because my parents got divorced when I was two. Are you sure that they weren't just like, maybe this is because it seems like not only did you take uh, my show, but you also have my same back. We stick my history. All right, Dan, I'm going to admit it. I'm going to admit it. They said, we're either going to take Dan down or the next guy that walks in. I heard them through the door. I crashed in and said, I'll do it for free, which I just about did. Jack's going to reveal for the first time he did four seasons of Booze Traveler for no money. And I paid them. Just to keep me off the air. No, um, you, man, you killed it. And, and you know I'm kidding you when I say, you know, I... I'm happy for you, and I'm happy you got to do it. And so, okay, besides Italy, where else? What else jumps out at you? Uh, you know, it's funny because if you could ask me any other day, it might be different, whatever I'm thinking about at that time. Uh, Cuba was so strange to me because it was locked down for the longest time. We all know about the Cuban Missile Crisis, how there was almost a nuclear war with the Soviets in the 60s, you know, 13 days in October, all of that. So to be able to go there, uh, when it was open at the time, now, I, I don't know, it's mixed. You can go, you can't go, depending. But uh, I, when I, when we went there, I thought that people were going to say, America, you try to kill Castro, you suck, and all these things. Who knows? They were so fun and happy and wanted to show me their land. It's as if they, they weren't allowed to get in touch with us, uh, their neighbor, 90 miles to the north, and they were so happy. It's like they've been saving all this stuff up since 1959. And everybody said, you know, we have this and we have that. And please have a mojito. And here's a cigar. And here's some great food. It, it looks like time stopped, like a Twilight Zone episode. The clock just stopped. 1959. All the cars, which they repair with washing machine parts and whatever they can get. They're just beautiful, pristine and they're all from that era because Castro wouldn't allow new cars to come in. But the reason they had all this stuff, 
all these companies, and I learned this, of course, uh, doing my research to go there, all these companies would test all the products in Havana when we were friendly with them. And then if they worked, they would bring them to the States. So they had all the latest, greatest stuff that came out in the late 50s, yeah. and they still had it. But including their cars, their taxis are these beautiful old convertibles. And it's just, it's like a fantasy land, but it's stuck in time. If there was ever time travel back to that, that would be the place to go. And then some of it was really run down. You know, they had a casino there that, you know, the mob was involved with, et cetera. It's still the way it was. Broken windows. Uh, they let it go just to show that. Aha. Because it's the scene from The Godfather. It got, was it Godfather right. 2? Yeah, the scourge when the, of capitalism. When the revolution they, happened, they, they were there, right? It, they, you know, in, exactly. in the movie. Was it Godfather 1 or 2 when they're down there? Uh, I just yeah. re- What I do remember about that down there when they were Cuban was when they were ordering drinks, uh, Fredo ordered a banana daiquiri. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> so that, that's such Fredo, isn't it? It's so Fredo. so Fredo. Now you did an episode in the final, in the fourth season called Caribbean Rhythm. So where did you go? Do you remember where you went for that one? Because I'm trying to get around to the sort of the rum aspect of it. I mean, Cuba obviously had a big rum culture there as, sure. as well. Where else did you go? With, do you remember where you went for that Caribbean Rhythm episode? You know, it's funny because I also shot a show for them called Best Bars. I did 10 episodes. Then I did a show called The Trip for three seasons. So it's kind of blurred. It blurs to me because I was down there quite a bit for them. But Jamaica, uh, Dominica, St. Lucia, Antigua. uh, I know that I had rum in all those places. That's for sure. No doubt. So you the French. So Batiste rum comes from the French Caribbean. Uh, I've never actually been to the French Caribbean. I, I don't think. I mean, I've been all over the Caribbean, but not. Uh, not the French Caribbean itself. It, this- I've been to the French Polynesia, Tahiti, uh, and there's some good stuff there. Vanilla rum uh, with the vanilla that's the best in the world, that in Madagascar. That's there. Okay, this one comes from an, an island called Marie Galante, uh, and I have not been Never there. Never been. But what I can tell you, what I think is really cool about this, and excuse me, I'm burping now. Back in the day when I used to go, I don't think they were as concerned about, this is a very, this is a carbon negative rum, a very, very eco-positive Tristan, again, who we're going to meet a little bit later in the show, that was his mission. And what I think is great about brands like this and what they're doing is it's driving the whole industry that way. You know, whether it's scotch, bourbon, that's a big movement. And back when you were doing the show, it probably wasn't even, that wasn't as much of a concern, did you think? And it's really only been the last three or four years that you're really seeing that message get pushed about being a, a, a responsible steward of the environment. I got to figure back in the day, these distilleries were just dumping shit, especially down in the Caribbean, probably just dumping it in the ocean. Yeah, you're right. Very few places had that in mind. The ecological impact, the environment, all of that. There were a few, don't get me wrong, but not too many because it was about cranking out alcohol and, you know, you drive a car, you have to have an exhaust until they say, oh, electric cars. They didn't care about it because it was to them worth the trade-off. But, uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, I thank you for this stuff too. Of course, uh, I got I got the reserve. Can we talk about? Yeah, try the, try the reserve. Yeah, I'm I'm still drinking the gold, and I think later I'm going to drink the silver with Tristan. But I want to hear your thoughts because uh, on the on the gold on the reserve, which is kind, it's a really sort of a deep gold color. It spent 18 months in in rye whiskey barrels, and I'm I'm interested to see what you think of it because you have had. You've had your share of rum. Oh, you see, that's nice to me. That is more uh, my speed, if you will. It's uh, it's rounded and 
buttery and butterscotched and caramel. To me, that's more like a traditional rum. It's really great. I mean, the, the, the zero carbon thing and all of that, that's really wonderful. But at the end of the day, the taste, the quality, I mean, this is really good. It's what's in your glass that matters at the end of the day. Would you say, Jack, are you more of a cocktail guy or do you like hmm. to drink things neat on the rocks? You know, I I appreciate the artistry, uh, well, behind any kind of art, I suppose. But cocktails, I think, for, for the longest time, underrated because the, the mixology is a combination of art and science, head and heart. So I really appreciate when a cocktail is made well. Now, I don't mean a punch where they just throw a bunch of shit together and say, here, just have that, uh, where they don't pay attention to it. They're just trying to hide the alcohol. I love the the things that that bring out the taste of it. That you know, So I, I, I like it neat as well because I like the spirit, but uh, I, I love a good cocktail. You know, there's a place in Athens, I'm sure you've been there, called Momix. I've never, I've never actually been to Athens, no. Oh, wow. Well, uh, this place, it's Momix, short for Molecular Mixology, and they are just geniuses over there when it comes to this. Not only the presentation, but how they put it together. And one thing I learned, I mean, I learned many things, of course, but around the world, there's a lot of trends happening that will be coming here soon. And I know you know about that as well. Well, but let me say let me say this about Molecular. I actually did it a long time ago when I wrote for Playboy. I wrote a piece about the, one of the Probably the pioneer of molecular mixology was a guy named Eben Freeman, who was doing this in New York City. And I mean, I'm talking, this had to be 2006 or two, something when I, when I wrote this piece. Yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing to see, but I love watching how the trends go. But I like a good sipping rum, though, too. Like rum, me too. Rum, yeah. to me, is because you get, that, you get that sweetness to it, but not overly sweet. But it just, it's very comfortable. I think an aged rum, a, a well-made aged rum to me, just feels relaxing. Whereas if I'm drinking a, a, a big scotch or I'm drinking, you know, a bit an old single malt, or and, and don't there's a there's a different kind of enjoyment to that. But let's face it, there's you know if I'm drinking Octomore or Ardbeg or something, I love them, Big Petey, but it can be challenging. Like you gotta you gotta put your fucking strap on your your your. <laughs> your dude boots when you're going to drink that stuff and be like, yeah, you know, like that's the stuff you drink it and you, you know, her. Whereas a good aged rum tends to be very easy, approachable, relaxing. Is that a, is that a good description of drinking something? No, that's relaxing. I, I like that because you have to pay attention when you're drinking the other stuff here. It's uh it's, it's more casual, a little more passive. Like you say, it's easier or more approachable, but that, but this is, and I'm not just saying this because you have me on the show. I really like this. This reserve is right up my alley. This is uh, because it, it it's it's so soft, it, it's so smooth, and it has that like it's that butter that just that butter roundness, uh, caramel. It's just really nice, and it, it's it doesn't have any bite at all. It's fantastic. Hey man, I'm here for you, buddy. I'm here for you. I want to make sure you're happy. I'm just trying to make you happy with the rum. I owe you one. I'm going to have to give you a show at some point to make it up to you. I want to make you happy. All right. I want to throw out just a couple more places you went. And what I want you to do is I just want you to, off the top of your head, the first thing that comes to your mind of what you drank that stuck okay. with you in that place. Okay. Sure. All right. These are all episodes that you did of Booze Traveler. Florida's Free Spirits, season three. You know what I remember most about Florida? It was, they had a, it's funny, it's not a drink, a tiki bar that floated. And so you sit 
on in the four corners of what's a small little hut-like bar, and it takes off into the water. If you step off that stool wrong or you've had too much to drink, you go into the drink. And they got gators all over the place there. So that that is the thing that sticks out to me the most. About of course, we, I, I drank alcohol really nice. Uh, some guy gave me a bottle of Four Roses uh, that was award-winning. Um, but we drank it through the skull of a of an what do they have down there? Alligators or crocodiles? I think they have alligators, don't they? Uh, they have both, actually. In the I, okay, I, I just got both. that question in Trivial Pursuit. The Everglades have alligators and crocodiles. I, okay, so it was through the skull of one of them that was it was a souvenir thing. That was one of the stranger vessels I've ever had a drink through. But that tiki bar, you really have to. When you're having a drink, you don't want to be paying attention to what's going on. One step, boom, it's all over. And who knows what happens? It's all over. Yeah. All right. What about um, you did an episode in the final season called Czech Castles and Cocktails, the Czech Republic. Do you remember what you're drinking in the Czech Republic? Oh, yeah. We went to a place right in Prague called Ufleku, the most famous uh, place anywhere around there. They sell more beer. Uh, I don't know, thousands and thousands of glasses a day. And uh, it's it. I, I don't want to use this word before, but the joy people there drinking this beer and they're, they're toasting and singing. And it's not a put on. We have restaurants here in the States where waiters will sing and get everybody going. But this happens naturally. It's not yeah. part of the program. In other words, just having that great beer and the food. Soon as you walk through the door, well, the Czech, the Czech Pilsner. I mean, Pilsner Erkel is from the Czech, from Prague, and that's one of the earliest Pilsners ever. I remember being many years ago. I was at Aspen Food and Wine, and I'm talking a long time, like almost 20 years ago. And was it Michael Jackson? Was the not Michael Jackson, he, he, Michael Jackson, but Michael Jackson, the spirits and, and beer critic, did some, he did a beer tasting and he took the Pilsner Raquel. He'd gone on sort of long-winded tasting notes about a lot of the beers, but he takes the Pilsner Raquel, takes a sip, puts it down, says, simply put, the finest Pilsner in the world. And then he just <laughs> moved on. That was it. It's like, that's all I got to fucking say. Sounds, sounds like the most interesting man in the world. Yeah, so beer beer in the Czech Republic. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. Let's go with, man, you just, I'm looking at this list, man. You've just gone so many great places. What about Finland? Sauna in the Midnight Sun was the name of the episode in 2015. Finland. What were you drinking there? You know, I, they, they, <laughs> everyone makes their own, uh, Aquavit, right? Their Aquavit, own water yeah. of life, their own uh, harsh liquor or or uh, their moonshine, their, their pride in, in making something very alcohol heavy. It's not about the art of it. Some places, of course, it is. Macallan in Scotland, it's about, you know, how great they can make it. Some, they just want to use what they have and they make alcohol out of it. And, and in Finland, of course, uh, it's funny because they, they were thinking that Russia was going to come across the border any day. And I was saying to the people, a couple of people told me this, and it's like they're constantly looking over their shoulder and they're drinking in excess because they're saying, who knows, today could be the day Russia invades <laughs> this us. This is it. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, you you really believe? Now, I didn't want to tell them. Uh, what you know? What the politics were? I don't know. Maybe it's true. I didn't think it was going to happen. But they said, Jack, don't be so naive. It's going to happen any day now. But they've been like that for years. So I remember that they drank 
And we drink for all different kinds of reasons, of course, to celebrate, to mourn, to take the edge off at the end of a long day. I remember a few of those people drinking because they thought we better drink it now because it could be all over at any any time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you're talking about the sauna. There's more saunas in Finland than people. Uh, and we did a fire truck sauna. So we were locked in a fire truck driving around with these guys who were n- naked, basically, because that's how you're supposed to do it. And uh, they it was so hot in there, over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. I, I really had to do this uh, mind control kind of thing or try to. I don't know how to do that because it was so hot. But we had to get this scene. We had to have the experience. So they stopped and got sausages and cooked them on the rocks that the because the, the sauna was in the back of this sealed fire truck. And we cooked sausages. So as soon as we stopped, we jump into the sea, ice cold. I lose my breath, thinking maybe my heart's going to stop any minute, jump out, feel so invigorated and have these sausages with mustard. And I say, Wow, what an experience. Something I wouldn't do anywhere else in the world, probably. Amazing. Well, let's go. I'm going to go one more here that it fascinates me. Do you remember what you were drinking in Guatemala? Oh, Guatemala. There's this thing, to me, my favorite drink there. We got to go to somebody's house. And uh, now they have this drink everywhere. But to me, you know, when if it's, if it's made in a brewery or a distillery, that's fine part of the country, part of the culture. But when people invite you into their homes and they make something for you, even if everyone in the world has it or everyone in that place, it just feels special. The, the way they talk to you, the way they bring you in, it's a lot different than doing a, a a more sanitized thing at a brewery, right, or a distillery. And they have this thing there called caldo de frutas, uh, the soup of fruits, they call it, or fruit soup. And they have... I don't know if you remember this when you were a kid, but on the East Coast in Boston, we had a thing called Zarex, right? It was like a syrupy drink that you mix with water and it becomes kind of like a Kool-Aid, but it's way better. And then you throw a bunch of fruits in there. It's like a kid's sangria with no alcohol, I suppose, right? And it was a very big drink when we were kids. It had a zebra for a symbol on the front. For those who know, they understand. That was a, that was a, that was a New England thing, man. We didn't have that in Philly. Well, in this, in this case... It tasted like a Zarex with alcohol. They have all these fresh fruits that they sit in there for days and weeks and months, however they want to serve it to you. And then they pour in their own moonshine, whatever they're making. And it was so great because we drank it. We got a little buzzed, as I often did on the show. Did you ever have any time where you're like, I don't think I don't know if I'm gonna make how much I'm gonna make it here? Like you're you're drinking a lot on the show. You know, th- Here's why that's such a great question. We had to deal with that early on. You know, when when I was drinking the very first episode, Turkey, I mean, I drank everything they handed me. And they said, I remember our DP said to me, how are you still standing? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I just think I'm so excited by the experience that I know I, I have to. I have to share this. I can't just say I'm taking a nap or I'm falling down. I have to be present. I have to be in the scene. Not only my obligation to the show and to maybe whoever would watch this thing, but to the production company, to the to the network and to the people there. Because we had a couple, we'd shoot several scenes a day, depending on where we were. So I think I just willed myself to, to drink what they gave me because I didn't want to insult the culture. I don't want to go there and say, we're, go- we're going to invade your space. You're going to let us in. But I really can't drink that much. I'll drink once in a while. So I drank what I could, but I had to learn over time to temper that. Because some people, they just, they, they would put me under the table. I mean, there's some, 
for instance, in Japan, the sumo wrestler, 20 bottles of sake. I'd be dead, Dan, if I drank Because their much, body right? mass, their body mass, like, what would it take? They, they have to be able to put it away at least five times as much alcohol as you could, right? I don't think I could drink four bottles of sake and still be able to speak. This guy had 20. And, and it's just, you know, I think that they can do a lot of things that I can't do. But around the world, it's not just the amount of alcohol. It's being used to drinking what they're drinking. Because it's not like we just had uh, traditional vodka or bourbon. Some of their stuff I've never had before, and it takes them getting used to. Like in Lithuania, they have Zalgaris. And that could be 80 to 90% alcohol. How can you get used to it? It's like drinking Drano that's on fire. It's just so strong. It can burn a hole in your throat. So you, so you have to realize, okay, I'm going to drink a little bit here. Then I'll have there. I'm not going to drink like I'm on vacation. I have a show to do. So you learn how to do it so you can do a better show, but still be authentic and not insult anybody. But every once in a while, and I have, I mean, I have this just doing this show and obviously, you know, responsible drinking is the mantra here. And it's what I tell everybody. You, know, you don't want to be an asshole, but there are times. And then I find myself kicking myself later, oh, even though we have a great time. And, and I just recorded an episode with a, a very big celebrity who's going to be on next week. Uh, well, I'll just say it, Brian Cranston. Recorded an episode with Brian Cranston, and oh, we were drinking. We were drinking a lot of his Dos Hombres uh, mezcal, and I get promos, and I'll get one from you, Jack. But I get the promos from the celebrities that come on. You know, hey, this is you're listening to, and I I wrote what I thought was a very funny promo for Brian Cranston. Did you watch Breaking Bad? Oh. One of the great shows of all time. So the promo that I wrote for Brian Cranston, and again, that's next week's show, was, this is Brian Cranston, and I'm the one who knocks back mezcal on, <laughs> on what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. And I thought that was very clever. And I wrote yes. it, and I had, and I had a, yeah. You're such a great writer. You're so clever. <laughs> and Anyone I, who's familiar with your writing thank knows you, that they would expect that from you. Anything less would be disappointing. And I got a big note on my computer in front of me on my notes. I got asterisks next to Make sure you get the promo. And then what happened was, and this probably happened with you and I, is a little inside baseball here for everybody, is I end these interviews, but then we usually end up staying on Zoom because I'm fucking lonely, and we just <laughs> sit and talk. And that's what happened with Brian Cranston. I ended up talking to Brian Cranston for another longer than we actually did the interview for the show. That's and great. we're just talking about this, 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 and this. And then as soon as I said goodbye to him and we, we signed off, I looked at it and I went, God damn it. And it's one of those cases where you go, if I only had not been that buzzed, I wouldn't have forgot. So every once in a while you, you get those. It's a, it's a, an occupational hazard, I guess we have here, but it's, there could be worse things that happen. Now, the final thing I want to talk about, Jack, before I let you go, because I've had you for a long time here. So at the end of the show, the series is ending in what, 2017? It ended 20. We, we yeah we uh, that's right twenty seven or eighteen we, eighteen yeah well no no well okay so we we went f the year fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen and it aired in twenty eighteen the last so you had a uh, health health issue you got cancer tell me can you talk about that a little bit because um I I wonder how you're doing mainly and I know you're doing you look good you look fine but how what happened filters that's what it is it's these great filters you sent me uh no what happened was actually. Just about halfway through those four years, I was diagnosed in April 2016 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
which was a big shock to me because <laughs> I felt great, right? I didn't even know I had it. It was a pure fluke on how I got diagnosed. You know, my my stepbrother is a physician's assistant, and he said, you know, spring chicken, you should come in and get your heart checked and uh, j- just because you're on hiatus. So why don't you do that? So I did, and they found a little blip at the bottom of the frame uh, that shouldn't be there, and they said, well, we're going to have to do a from your neck down to you pelvis we're going to do a whole scan because we see something and i went the the very next day and my abdomen was just riddled with cancer and uh, just to give an example uh your lymph node uh, one of them there should be about they they accepted at a centimeter mine was nine and a half at the time so they said you have advanced non-hodgkin's lymphoma the good thing is it's slow growing so you you might have had it for a couple of years uh, do you have any of the symptoms? And I said, what are the symptoms? Well, you're tired a lot. Uh, you know, you're swelling in your limbs. You don't you don't uh, sleep well. Uh, you know, and I said, yeah, that's from doing the show. We're zipping around. No sleep. Too much sleep. International dateline. Drinking strange stuff. You're describing the show. He says, well, yeah, it'd be the same symptoms, really. But if, if you feel like you can do this, We'll wait till your next hiatus or whatever. Uh, and we'll, we'll take scans between now and then, and we'll see how you do. The first two scans, it actually went down a little bit. And, and the doctor said, if you really put your mind to it, and you are, it's, it's this amazing mind-body-spirit connection, you can heal yourself. You know, like they say, physician, heal thyself. And I don't mean completely. I don't want to talk like that. Yeah, you're not suggesting that you know the mind is the way people get cancer and they don't recover from cancer, and it's it's of another, course yeah, by no what? yeah no no I don't I don't suggest that you can completely heal yourself. Uh, I'm I'm pro science for sure, pro medicine, but but the first, he says it's happened and and more than he would think that you get the diagnosis. And you, you change your lifestyle, you change the way you look at things. And, and, and it went down both times for no reason, because I was not on medication. Uh, I hadn't gone into any kind of treatment. Uh, but that's a temporary thing because your mind, your body makes that uh, adjustment. So then the third scan, it started growing again. So it's kind of a push me, pull you thing. And then the fourth one, it went back up to 10 and a half. It was growing a little more rapidly. So they said we have to do something. So I went into chemo, and about halfway through- when it, when this happens, Jack, is there a time when you think to yourself, "Fuck, you know, I'm I'm on TV. I I, I got everything I wanted. I'm doing, and and now it could all be over." Did that ever cross your mind, or no? You know, that's a lot of people ask me that, and they say the same thing. They're like, "Oh man, this is horrible." Right when you catch a break, because I know you've been in LA for a while. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing guest star on television. You become a host. You get this great show, traveling the world, and then you get hit with cancer. To be honest, I looked at it the other way. I said I was, you know, a struggling actor. I'm doing a few things here and there. I get a great show. At least I had all of that before I got cancer, because that afforded me the ability to to go into a, a, a good treatment. I had a, a good insurance plan and I had seen the world. I had done things that a lot of people will never get a chance to do. So if this is the end, what a way to go out, right? You were at peace. You were at peace with, I mean, not, not that you were giving up, but you were certainly not, why me? You didn't feel sorry for yourself. No, 
honestly, I wasn't. And I tell you, it's not that I thought I was going to die, by the way. It's relatively easy to get through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma compared to, let's say, pancreas cancer or pancreatic cancer. Colon cancer or, or something like that. Or, yeah. or brain cancer or something like that. Sure. So I, I, I was pretty confident I was going to make it through. But halfway through chemo, Travel Channel pulled the show and everyone asked me, oh, uh, that's horrible. Why would they do that when you have cancer? They were just they were changing their programming to a more uh, paranormal esque programming schedule. And and we weren't doing that. I guess you could say I was in a different into a different kind of spirits, right? Well, that was when I pitched my show, Drinking with Sasquatch. And I don't know, I don't know how the fuck they didn't pick that up, man. I mean, it was it was right up their alley. Per- perfect fit. I, I just don't know how. You know, and you then you could you could do with the what's it called? What's the other one? The Abominable Snowman, right? Story of my life, Jack. I mean, you know, I come Nepal. up with a great idea. Anal probes and Negronis. Like with aliens, <laughs> and I don't know. They didn't buy. It. They they told me in Nepal the story of the of the abominable snowman, right? What's it? And uh, they said they he he comes into the village and steals steals all the alcohol. That's why it, that's why it's missing, and and because they drink it all and they don't want to. You know, they say, oh no, the the, the, the that that thing got it. And I say he drinks all that alcohol, yet he never gets drunk. <laughs> and they. No one got it except the camera crew, right? And I said, "That's that's a show, just like you said, drinking with Sasquatch, drinking with a Yeti. That'd be great. How how does that not so?" Ah, man. Well, so you're doing good now. You good? You healthy? I'm doing great. I went through main uh, my main treatment of of chemo, which is about four or five months, pretty intense. Then I opted for maintenance chemo. I didn't have a show to do, so that's fine. It's not like I had to get back out there. And besides, I wanted to focus. I didn't mind that the show went away because I really had to focus on living first and my health second. My career, the show, all of that, like you said, I got to do four seasons. Maybe I'll do something again or something similar. But I had to focus on getting through it. So I did maintenance chemo for almost two years and then I got osteomyelitis. My bone was dying in my jaw. So I had to drive myself to the hospital every day, had a pick line put in from my bicep to my heart to get copious amounts of antibiotics every day for a month. I couldn't miss a day. And then at the end of that, of course, COVID hits. So it's been a, it's been a ride. But I got to tell you, it's been like that for everybody, of course, as far as COVID. And it's a horrible thing. But I, I hopefully we're rounding the turn. And I know personally I am. I feel great. Uh, you know, thanks to these filters, I look like I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm not <laughs> still enjoying a couple of cocktails and the, the, the company of friends over zoom. It's great. Jack Maxwell, man, always, what a pleasure to talk to you. And you gotta be, we're going to get you on this show way more often. Now we're going to have to, we're going to have to bring you back in anytime. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the rum, my friend. I'm enjoying it as well. Oh, good stuff. I really love the reserve. It's all good, but I love the reserve. Where people can find you at Southie Jack, right? And Southie Jack on the Instagram. Yeah, I know. Every time I say it, people think I'm saying selfie. I'm from, as you pointed out, South Boston. And when there was a lot of Jack Maxwell's out there. So Travel Channel helped me pick Southie Jack, S-O-U-T-H-I-E-J-A-C-K. And that's uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Reach out and say hi, whatever. But uh, you know, I, you you said something earlier, and I want to say this again. I was really lucky to get that show, and everybody would have done it their own way, and anybody could have done it well. But it was handed to me, 
And and I hope that for people who saw it, they en- they enjoyed it, and that they saw that so many things we we have that we have way more in common than we do differences. And there's just so many wonderful people and cultures out there. I hope that when the world opens up again, so to speak, that people will take the opportunity to travel and to go and to see things because. It, you know, I know it's a cliche that it expands your horizons and all of that, but it to me, it's one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Not the show, but the ability to spend time with different types of people. Amen to that, brother. And uh, on that note, Jack Maxwell, thank you, man. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with Tristan Merman, the guy who makes his rum. And uh, Jack, we'll see you back on this show very soon. Thanks, Dan. I look forward to it. When the only sound is the frozen silence of winter, you go to work. Throwing mountains of snow back into the sky. And when the track becomes a railroad again, it's Miller time. Time to head for the best tasting beer you can find. Miller High Life. If you've got the time, we've got the beer. Miller Beer. Miller Beer. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. You made your choice. (laughs) Joining me now, and I would like to have his job as well, he is the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, Tristan Merman. How are you, man? Good, thanks. How are you? Good to see you. Good to hear from you. Uh, We, Jack and I, just had a very enjoyable round of... uh, drinking and chatting about rum batiste but i wanted to kind of get a little bit more into it with you well it's you know it's it's a it's a heck of a story i'll tell you that um it began for me in the uh mid 90s in san francisco um i was studying uh traditional chinese medicine and holistic health and at the same time going out and having drinks and eating food in san francisco with a, a good friend at the time a guy named mike gibson who wanted to try everything and drink everything and um, we were, we ended up a lot at uh, Tommy's Mexican Restaurant on Geary Street, where the uh, bartender is a guy named uh, Julio Bermejo. Bermejo. Yeah. And he was. I, I know. I know Julio well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Julio was like the first craft cocktail dude in the city, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, he talked about how things were made, and you know, what the effect of how things are made, and how to use fresh juices, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so we were there a lot. And a couple of years later, my future ex-wife, I wanted to impress her. So I took her over there and said, hey, you got to try these drinks out. And when we left, she said, man, if you like margaritas, wait till you try French rum. And I was like, oh, okay. So a few years later, we were married and we start. her family is originally from St. Bart's. And we started going down there. So her grandfather was telling me this story about how he would, you know, had this sailing boat and he would go over to the French Caribbean, pick up goods and bring them over to St. John and St. Thomas and he would sell it for gold back dollars at that time. And so he was, you know, saying, this is how I made my living in the Caribbean. Right. And he says, you should check it out. And I was like, okay, well, it's a different world, but what the hell I'll check it out. And so I started, you know, wandering around inside the French Caribbean, mostly in Guadeloupe looking for a distillery that would partner with me. And this is like 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, uh, looking for somebody who'd sell me bulk rum. I knew that I wanted to, I was inspired by people like uh, Pete's Coffee and Scharfenberger Chocolate and all these different Bay Area companies that were essentially fusion products, right? They would bring some tropical good here. They'd be inspired by some European recipe and they'd do that. So I was like, all right, I want to do something like that. And so I got, 
you know, got into the business of trying to figure out how to bring rum to America from the French Caribbean. And that took some time. And eventually I got into a partnership with our current, my current partner in business, a, a man named Hubert, who I got to his distillery one year after he had finished building it. And he had gotten a permit and a grant from the French government to build the first ecologically correct distillery in the Caribbean, which was on a, on a plant that was on a location that his family had owned for about a hundred years. And he, he had been the environmental inspector in Guadeloupe to deal with reviewing how people were dealing with their effluent and their discharge from the distilleries to make sure they weren't going into the waterways and that kind of stuff. So he built this first ecologically correct distillery and may still only be the only one in the French Caribbean. I'm not hundred percent sure on that at the moment. And uh, I said, great. Hey man, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to import your product in bulk to California and make product from it. And he said, let's do it. So um, that got started. And I thought this was, I, I honestly thought it was going to be a breeze because I was like, this stuff is great. You know, we're going to make a kick-ass product. We're going to introduce a rum that's not Bacardi. And, you know, people are going to go crazy for it because they love tequila, right? Um, you, st- you show up and you talk about a eco-positive French Caribbean rum agricole that's finished in Napa uh, for 40 bucks a bottle. And people are like, I don't know what any of those words mean in 2008. <laughs> And this is twelve. This is twelve years ago. Two thousand eight. Yeah, is when I first introduced it, and they're just looking. At, I mean, in all fairness, there were a couple bars in the city at that point that actually kind of got the idea. There was, um, you know, Fad Vogler was around. He had he was getting involved at that time. Um, Martin Kate was over at Forbidden Island. So sure. you know, there was there was reception to the idea, and immediately it was why are why isn't this a rum from the distillery being whole, you know, imported and marketed as a brand from, from the Caribbean directly. And there were a couple of brands, you know, rum agricole brands running around that were doing that. And my approach was like, because we're making something different, we're not a, we're not a rum agricole, you know, we're not featuring that heritage. We're not featuring that story. This is a new distillery with that's, you know, in the rum agricole style, but is doing something different than what has been the tradition for Martinique and Guadalupe. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm faced with this, this interesting obstacle, like how do you market French rum to Americans, right? You know, because, you know, rum agricole, especially rum agricole blanc, is tea punch. That's like 95% of its consumption in the Caribbean is for tea punch. Uh, in, in the, and nobody was drinking tea punch here. That's like, we don't get it. So it took some time to start formulating and trying different ideas on how to produce the product. And uh, in about two, 2015 or so, 2016, um, 2016, uh, John Lawson, my production partner, my uh, business partner here, said, hey, man, we got to focus on what's great about this product, that it's eco- ecologically correct, that it's 100% made from fresh sugarcane juice. It's carbon negative, right? Yeah. So these are all the things that we started focusing on as opposed to it being a, a really good French rum. Because the, the, inherently in the story, there was all these good parts but I was kind of like, you know, you start overwhelming people with parts and it, it gets lost what you're drinking, right? So you start talking about process and you get into the componentry, it can be, it can be complex. And I, I think that's a wise way to go. I mean, you, you, so you're 100% plastic free, your, your, your glass, yep. your glass is from the States, right? Instead of, yep, instead of China, you get it from Missouri. It's yep. uh, your fair trade. You got all, you got all this going. And I, and I, and I really do love the idea of this Caribbean California fusion. That's right. That's exactly it. That makes it a really unique product. And 
and not only that, it's a delicious product. Thank you. Jack and I yeah. loved it when we were drinking it. <laughs> Still loving it right now. Now let's talk about the different uh, expressions you have in the in the line. Now you've got. I'm drinking the silver. This one right here, which is the yeah. Oh, look That's at that. the silver. Yeah, yeah. the silver is great. Tell us about the entire what you have in the entire line and and how what would you do with it cocktail wise? Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So we have a silver, we have a gold, and a reserve. Right. And you know the inspiration for how we make products is tequila. Right. So you have. Blanco, Añejos, and Reposados. So we have a silver and golden reserve using rum nomenclature. Um, the silver is however you want to drink it. It makes a, it makes a killer Negroni. I'm drinking it on the rocks right now. I just got one big cube, and it's it's what I love about. I mean, obviously rum is great in a cocktail, but yeah, it's such a unique flavor. Rum. I love to experience it. I don't like to drink it at room temp. I don't necessarily like it neat, but I like it on. I like it with an ice cube. I really sure. do. I, I think it. It's the same sort of thing. Exactly what you said with tequila. With me, yeah. I don't like too much wood on my tequila because I love right. the. I love the agave flavor. You know, exactly. same thing here. And uh, yeah, but I mean, I can see how this thing would just go great in a cocktail as well. Yeah, it's it's so we we think of our product line as a cocktail rum. I mean, so the the parts of it that are interesting to me is that it's 100% fresh sugarcane juice as opposed to a molasses product. So your distillate is a lot more forgiving at that point, right? So, you know, instead of having to do lots of agings or spicings or different ways to make it more palatable, in our case, our fusion relative to how it compares to a rum agricole is water choices, filtration choices. And when it comes to the aging, the gold we age six months in ex-Tennessee rye whiskey, the reserve is two years. And that's it. So that's, that's our, that's the the core of our line. And I, I drank Batiste rum primarily with citrus and soda water. And if I want it sweet, sweetened, I use, I use uh, maple syrup as my sweetener. You can do, again, the silver will do pretty much anything you can think of. I mean, I, I did a presentation for the tasting panel last year where I made martinis it makes a dynamite Negroni. It makes a kick killer French 75. Uh, you can, it, you know, any kind of, any kind of citrus driven thing, anything where, you know, you have body sweeteners, like if you're going to use honey or if you're going to use maple syrup, it goes really well with that. Um, the gold has been described to me. And I, the best description I had for the gold was that it was a mellow version of the silver, right? So what that does is it allows a little bit more complexity to, again, to citrus driven uh, cocktails, so, you know, things that have more expressive, you know, like oranges or grapefruits, it can go really nicely with that. Um, if you're looking to do traditional rum cocktails, it goes well there. Um, and then the reserve was our sipping rum, you know, was, was the idea that it's, it's like an extra añejo, you know, it's a, it's two years, it's got a little bit more wood on it. Um, it drinks beautifully neat, uh, but it also makes outstanding cocktails. So citrus, citrus primarily, um, can be done dry. Um, you know, if you're going to do martinis, it's the, it's the blanc, you know, it's the Dolan blanc, uh, vermouth goes best with it as opposed to the sweet vermouth for the dry, dry, dry vermouths. How important the feedback you getting from people in terms of the, the environmental aspect of this? I mean, how yeah, do you, is, is it something, cause I get people ask me this all the time. They go, Oh, do people really care? Do yeah. they, they do care. Yeah. So the best thing that happened to me in this project was that it lined up with me philosophically, right? And, you know, being from Northern California, being from Marin County, these are, these kinds of ethics 
have been, you know, kind of stamped into our brains, like it or not. So it it does it does matter to people, and and hopefully we're seeing a shift now in sort of yeah. the national consciousness about about these sorts of things. Oh, I mean, I, I, sorry to interrupt you, but I think I think the thing that ecologically correct is starting to signal to people in general is that the people who are behind the making of the product are thinking multiple multiple steps ahead. They're not thinking profit margin only. They're not thinking. Um, their own fame or success or whatever only. They're thinking about you. They're thinking about the environment that you're operating in. So the result is you end up with better made ingredients, right? You know, like better, you start with better stuff, you use better tools, you're thinking long, you're thinking longevity, you're thinking waste. You know, what do you do with the stuff after it's been done? So from the from the customer side, from the person who's buying a bottle, they got a chance to participate in something that they can feel good about. And ideally, that what's in the bottle also feels good. So, you know, that's a little bit different than the, some of the history in alcohol, where sometimes it's just about margin, sometimes it's just about positioning and branding. And, and at the end of the day, it, it's what's in the bottle that matters and how it tastes. And I mean, this is a, a delicious rum. Thank you. You mentioned Bacardi earlier in, in the thing, and obviously that's a, the behemoth, right? Yeah. When you look at the future, do you, do, you, do you see more people embracing the smaller craft brands? Do you think that's... My intuition on this is when you find something that resonates with you and you think it matches what you want to put in your body, it's going to be pretty hard for you to turn away from it once you know about it. You know, the only barrier is going to be price and availability. So what, what are we talking about here price-wise? The silver, I think, is around 24 bucks. Fantastic. Yeah, the gold I think is like twenty eight, and I think the I got fifty. I got fifteen dollars cash right now, though. You take it. Come on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There you go. I already got. I'm, it. I'm right outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then the reserve I think is close to forty. I guess the final thing I, I want to touch on here is uh, any plans for expansion? Any sort of you mentioned te- you mentioned tequila, by the way. So we got to go back. So when you mentioned Julio, yeah. he's obviously he's famous for the the Tommy's Margarita, which you know most people would say is the best margarita in the world. So tequila seems to be the thing that drew you in. Yes. So would it stand to reason that maybe someday <laughs> you'd want to do a tequila brand or no? No, not no. going to do it. Why? No, we we make rum. You know this th- this project is a hundred percent because of the distillery we work with. It's 100% because we have an opportunity to introduce something that I think is substantially interesting for the American public. Um, you know, I can spend my whole life working on this product and this project and get a quarter of an inch deep on it. It's, you know, when you see the brands that really are meaningful, you have hundreds of years of investment in them. And you've got, you know, passion and you've got family connection and you've got people who love what it stands for and what it does for them. So, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to get past this thing in my lifetime. Has, uh, has Julio tried the, uh, uh, I've gone by with, with it and I was about to bring him some, uh, when I had all three to give to him and, uh, then COVID hit. <laughs> uh, how, how has that been for you? I, I, the spirits industry has done okay during the pandemic, all things considered, obviously you've lost a lot of the on-premise stuff, but then people are drinking order. How are you coping? How's the business coping during um, this? Well, we did a lot of, so I guess a couple of years back, we started going more into supermarkets. We, you know, we, uh, I can, ex- some other time I can tell you why, but you know, for the sake of this discussion, we started going to supermarkets. We started doing direct to the public demos, right? So we really wanted people to try what we were doing. And say, you know, 
hey, try this. And they go, oh, no, I don't drink rum. You know, I've got, you know, rum left me in a gutter somewhere from age 18 to 27. I'm not, you know, I, that, I can't do that anymore. And then they try it and go, oh, I can't believe that's rum. And so then they start, they get past, you know, they get past the first hurdle. They get into the next, like, wow, shit, this is pretty good. Then, you know, then they start learning about what we're about, what our philosophy is, how we're going about our business, how it's really different in, in the rum world. And that, and that year and a half of just getting out there and try, getting people to try it and do has actually sustained the business, even though, you know, our, our core marketing piece is, hi, Dan, please try, you know, and, you know, and that part's been basically put in the, in the garage for now. So um, we're, you know, so yeah, the work we did for a year and a half is basically sustained. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to come out of this. I, I, I feel oh, okay. it. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully soon. <laughs> oh, you know. Hopefully I mean, you know, if, you, if you had ever wanted to be a monk, this is a great time to learn out. Right. <laughs> but I do look forward to the day that uh, we get to do this in person, man, and That's actually awesome. mix up a couple of cocktails. Uh, right. Tristan, where can people find Ron Batiste on the social medias? Uh, oh, in the social medias, uh, I think there's a, an at Batiste Rum on Instagram. I think there's a Batiste Rum. Rum with the H, everybody. What, with what's with the H? What's up with the H? Uh, well, okay, so Ron, R-O-N, is Spanish for rum. Yeah. R-U-M is English for rum. And R-H-U-M is, wait for it, French for, with for rum. <laughs> Tristan Merman, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, and I, I, we're going to wrap the whole show here. I want to thank the audience for tuning in. I want to thank Jack Maxwell for being with us I invite everybody to follow us at wwd underscore podcast on instagram i'm at the imbiber uh next week on the show next, next week. week is brian cranston that's right breaking bad is going to be our guest next week you're going to want to tune in for that tristan thank you brother great Thanks, talking Dan. to you i appreciate you having me on everybody pick out uh pick up some rum batiste make it happen it's worth it i promise you Thanks. Right on, man. Appreciate it.